And uh, welcome to another award-winning episode of Swing Thoughts. That's right, uh, the golf podcast that other podcasts that talk about golf are so jealous of. And, you know, with no reason, we're, we're willing to share the uh, joy and wonder that is uh, Swing Thoughts, are we not? Oh, absolutely. They, they look at us on the range and go, we wish we could do that. Right. They're they're jealous, but we're not we're not exclusive we're not exclusionary, we're inclusive. We bring in everybody in. We hug them <laughs> equally. That's right. Um, it's uh, brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas. TaylorMade, the number one driver in golf. If you're not hitting an M1, why are you even playing the game? I, I, all weekend. Bother? All weekend. I played twice on the weekend. Yeah. M1 is a center of conversation. And people are saying, are you just talking about because they sponsor your show? I say, no. Somebody, I say no to that. Somebody uh, told me they had played with you. They knew that I knew you. And they had listened to the podcast. And they actually confirmed that you... <laughs> there you go, data. They confirmed that O'Connor is hitting his driver unprecedented distances. Yes, yes. Uh, is this loud enough for you? That is loud okay, enough good. for me. It's nice. Um, it's funny because I uh, I had an M1 three wood. I think I talked about this a while ago. I use an M2 three wood now, but when I first started hitting it, I it was uh, it was going too far. And honestly, <laughs> it, I, it was. That's a concept it golfers was. can't relate to. I, I was like, I don't know what to do with it because it's going to. It went beyond what I need a three wood to do. And I was thinking, well, this is an odd conundrum. Uh, anyway, also brought to you by Blue Springs and Glen Karen. There's never been a better time to join Club Link, and we play at two of the finest facilities. Um, you know, we don't talk enough about Blue Springs and what a great golf course it is. It's got a one of my favorite holes is that uh, ridiculous tenth hole. Because it's a mystery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like religion and politics. Well, it's weird because it's, it, you, I think it dog legs off the tee. It to feel, the right. To yep. the right, but then you go left to the green. And it's one of the uh, sneaky, toughest uh, the holes in the club link um, rota. It is. It is. I play it a uh, personal part of five. I think that's smart. No, it's a par four. Because if I don't, it was like on Saturday, I kind of tugged my drive a bit. And I was in the rough, 184, downhill lie. You got Muskoka Rock on the left. You got a pond in front, wedge. Lay up. Lay up. And, yeah, I made bogey, but. No, you made your personal par of five. I what did. You, what you didn't make is that creepy other numbers the that we make. The dreaded others. The dreaded yeah, others. Because sometimes you make those scores, and you're like, well, even though you'd like to accept it, and you go to the next hole after having tripled it, but you know that. Really, if you'd played the hole with, you know, three pitching wedges, you'd mostly make five. Yeah, absolutely. I was with my uh, friend yesterday, who's my better ball partner. We have this big tournament coming up this week at Oak Hill. And it's funny. We had this discussion about how we're going to approach certain holes. And on a downwind par five, we both hit really big drives for us. We're like we're 56 and 55 years old. And we both, on a 550-yard hole... Had like 250-ish in. He had 260. I had 250. I said, I don't know what you're going to do now. But I'm going to tell you in the tournament, I'm going to ask, I think we both should lay up. And he goes, well, why? You could easily get there. I said, yeah, I could get there. But not there's there's water right. There's bunkers left. There's bunkers short that if you really miss hit it, you've got a 40 yard you know, bunker shot. And I said, dude, you and I are never going to make more than five if we just hit, you know, nine iron lob wedge or eight iron whatever. And sure enough, he hits his three wood into the 40 yard short bunker, ends up making six barely. Yep. I hit three wood and block it just over the hazard, so I still have a shot, and I and I get up and I make my par. But neither of us were close to making birdie. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a great lesson for, for everyone. Like, Ian, and we're both pretty good players that uh, you don't necessarily, just because you think you can get there, you know, if it's a par four and it's a tough one, make a bogey. If it's a, you know, par five, don't make six or don't yeah. make seven. Interesting. Well, interesting. You mentioned we don't talk enough about Blue Springs. So on uh, yesterday, Sunday, Blue Springs, I got a good game going and I'm par five, number 15. And it's uh, so I got two. That's that one that's sort of got the you go up to the, the, the green. It's sort of a nice. It's like a tree on the right on the tee or something. No, no. Uh, you hit off the tee. You hit over over a gulch with a okay. pond on the right. Gulches are good. So so it's about a. 180 to the fairway. So I hit not a bad drive, but I had like 240 in downwind. I'm hitting the uh, the M1 three wood about 230 ish. Yeah. So I went. Let's just do this because I was hitting it pretty good yesterday. So I put it right to the front of the green, chipped on, made my bird. So I thought that was because I thought it would have been stupid to lay up because I was feeling good. Right. You you evaluated your state of mind and your your point. And then, you know, I think that's fine to go for it, knowing that you're feeling pretty good about the way you're hitting it. Yeah. And I was close enough that I knew that the, uh, you know, the out of bounds left wasn't going to come into play. Um, I wasn't hit the ball right. So I wasn't worried. So just Tim O'Connor with comfort. Tim O'Connor. Uh, rec- I love how you're uh, I was looking at your email the other uh, maybe this morning. It says on the bottom, if you uh, like my <laughs> services, recommend them to others. And I would heartily recommend the performance golf coach at uh, Glen Abbey, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca. And of course, uh, our little program that I do when I'm not doing swing thoughts, which is the humble and Fred show. And now, which is fun and classic mirthful. Classic transition music. Uh, yes. Our guest today is the uh, head teaching professional at Georgian Bay, a club near Collingwood. Uh, more than that, she's a fine player, former number one female junior, a, a good golfer on her own, a Titleist Performance Institute junior instructor, also a yoga instructor, and a devotee. Is that how you pronounce it? Devotee? Uh, well, let's go with that. Fred Shoemaker, uh, one of our guests, and of course, uh, we're both big fans of the way he teaches. And her teaching approach is based more on awareness than technical instruction. Say hello to Megan Chapman. Hello. Hi. Hi, Howard and Tim. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Megan, um, so interesting, your approach compared to a lot. I remember when... Uh, I first got to meet you. It was through Extraordinary Golf. They said, hey, you know, there's somebody in uh, Ontario who who comes to our coaching clinics and that kind of stuff. And you and I met, had a nice chat on the phone. Then I went up there and I found you were very unlike most golf instructors I've ever, <laughs> ever met. I mean, there wasn't much of the technical stuff at all. Um, you know, there's none of what I call the tab A into slot B instruction. And I remember one phrase you used was um, be with the target, which was so different than a lot of stuff people say you have almost like a laser focus, knock down the target. But anyways, I just thought a good place to start would be, you know, how you came to this approach to golf that you have, which seems to be more centered on what what the body does and awareness. And maybe just give some of your story of how you you came to this. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, well... I guess to put it sort of in a as simple as I can here, um, you know, rather than sort of treating symptoms in the golf swing, I started to get fascinated with what's the source um, to why the symptoms happen in the first place. So, <clears throat> I when I got into the golf industry in 2009, 
I, you know, did what I knew, and that was to sort of treat symptoms. If someone was coming over the top, let's come in from the inside, and if someone's sort of hanging back, let's get them sort of getting their hips through. Um, <clears throat> but what I noticed is that over time, <clears throat> excuse me, I, uh, you know, it just felt sort of kind of empty. didn't feel like much was kind of happening for that person. They'd have a couple good shots, and hopefully they'd end on a good one and send them along their way, and that was about it. And I started to track their progress, and not many people got, got better, actually, from that. So I started to look a little deeper of, well, what's missing? What can, what can I kind of look into here that would allow for a greater change in somebody? And I sort of, a parallel to this I would make would be, <clears throat> if I go to see a doctor, not to say I'm a doctor by any means, but just as a parallel, if I go see a doctor, I'd, ra- I'd, I'd rather have that doctor sort of get to the source of my symptoms rather than just sort of um, keep filling my prescriptions, so to speak. And uh, that's where it all started for me. And I guess that was about six years ago um, when I started to be a golf professional. Well, I think you were saying when we met is that you were on a certain track in terms of the way you learned the game. And I'll use the word you just used, that you found it was kind of empty. There wasn't, you weren't really seeing the progress. And there, you really weren't getting, shall we say, the fulfillment that you were seeking. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, it kind of felt... Like I said, kind of one person after another, and it wasn't—it really didn't feel fulfilling. And that's where um, I started to ask these questions of, well, what else could there be more to this than just sort of this telling somebody what to do and and basically just evaluating and judging their golf swing. And uh, you know, that's when I sort of thought out, okay, I wonder if other people are feeling this way. And it was kind of neat to come across Extraordinary Golf and Fred and his team, and I've spent. Uh, quite a bit of time with them and you know to meet yourself Tim and there's other people out there that I know are asking a lot of the same questions so um, you know it's been it's been kind of fun to explore that with other people when you say empty what did you kind of mean by that is that like just you were trying to give people the typical band-aid thing like fix fix your swing plane and put the club here and, and do this, the, all that kind of typical thing? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it was sort of, here's a golf swing and, um, okay, they were, you know, I could see what they were they were doing, so I just sort of told them, okay, let's do this instead. And what I noticed is that telling them what to do is what kind of got in their way. Because now, because I guess over the, over the last... I don't know, four or five years, I started to really ask the question to, you know, hundreds of people now, when you play your best golf, um, can you describe it for me? What does it feel like? And everyone describes it very similarly. They say, you know, feels like nothing. feels like um, I just got kind of got out of my own way. I wasn't worried about anything. So then I, was, I just kind of realized, well, my teaching was actually getting in their way. I was telling them things to stop that sensation of coming out. And that seems like kind of the golf culture we're in. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, because it really seems that everyone, you go uh, Golf Channel, you go to Golf Digest, you go wherever, and it's take this from the expert, apply this to your game, and you'll suddenly play better. You'll hit the ball like Bubba, as Golf <laughs> Digest would say, and that, that kind of thing. Absolutely. 
and hey, it's a good recipe for business because just you know, selling us a prescription—that's not a bad way to have have business keep coming back. So, what kind of? Yeah, well, you talk, that's interesting. You talk about business coming back, but I also thought it was really interesting is that what you thought was success for you was if you had a few sessions, you, maybe you coached a player for a while, and they didn't come back for a while, and that was success for you, which is you know, quite different than the usual model. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and Extraordinary Golf talks about this a lot, is, you know, the ability to self-coach. And, you know, if you can walk away with um, a greater awareness of your own self um, and what gets in your own way, you know, we don't have to rely on the external somebody else or something outside of us. The answers are always within. So, you know, if we can if we can create an environment where someone can start to see that, um, it's pretty neat what they can kind of find out on their own and, and uh, you know, the change that can happen for them. Um, the problem with a lot of golf instruction that frustrates players is, you know, you tell them something one day and you say, you know, you're... I don't know. Let's let's get beyond something basic. And you say, you know, this is kind of where I want your club, you know, halfway back in, in your backswing. The problem with golfers is that they go out and they maybe they practice it a little bit. And then while they're actually playing the game, they're not only measuring their golf, golf playing, they're measuring their golf uh, expertise against where Megan told them their club had to be. And that's why it's doubly frustrating because not only are they not playing any better, but they, they're not doing what the guru or the, the, the coach told them to do. So now they think that not only, <clears throat> pardon me, are they a bad golfer, but they're a bad learner, mm-hmm. that they're not really learning what you've asked them to do. So Fred Shoemaker's approach is different. How do you synthesize what, you know, extraordinary golf, how do you get an average player to kind of buy into the dogma of, you know, it's within you and it's in your body and, and, and be connected to the target when they're from a culture of placing the club at the nine o'clock position and your right hand has to be in this position. How do you reconcile that with the average guy there or woman that comes to see you? Hmm, that's a great question. It is a great question. <laughs> he is the master of great <laughs> questions. Just let's leave it. It's a great question. <laughs> um, I think the first thing that needs to shift is the attachment to outcome. And <clears throat> because once we are hung up on that, the learning really does stop. So I think that we can create that environment for ourselves fairly easily on the range. But when we go out and play, all of a sudden it changes. So the learning can stop really quickly because now we'll judge how the ball flies and lose sight of, okay, what did I experience there? Where, what part in the swing did I kind of get in my own way there? Um, so I think, I think that's the beginning. Um, and when you can start to create that environment for somebody or, or basically they can create it for themselves, um, then they can start start to see uh, kind of glimpses of okay, this kind of feels good and this feels more fun than sort of being hung up and attached on every single little thing that happens to this golf ball. But if somebody comes to see you, they're usually coming to see an instructor because they have uh, this notion that they're not a very coordinated person, yeah. and nothing makes you feel less coordinated than golf. How do you take them? Like let's again, let's say somebody has some kind of idea how to hold a club and some idea of standing. I mean, do you make some basic corrections and then you say, okay, but here's a way I want you 
to to feel differently in a golf environment? Yeah. So basically how I would, what we've done with a lot of people, so we take a, when someone comes to the door, we, we'll start with something really simple like throwing a golf ball. So literally just have them throw a golf ball underhand, not to any specific target, just throw it out there. And anyone I've ever seen has been able to pretty much do that. It doesn't necessarily go straight out there, just doesn't really matter. But everyone that throws a golf ball has weight shift, balance, their arm and their body are in sync to each other. Um, they have rhythm, tempo, all that. So then from there, uh, when we go put a club in the hand, hands, we have them sort of, okay, let's not replicate the throw necessarily, but see if you can kind of feel the same amount of permission as your throw, swinging in the same amount of permission. So all of a sudden their swing um, starts to look very athletic, very in sync, even, even in a beginner golfer. Then from there, once they can kind of feel, yeah, it feels about the same, then we kind of add one little element, add a goal. So we put a, maybe put a tee down on the ground. So the question would be, now that there's a goal there, does the permission get stifled or stuck somewhere, or do you have the same amount? And when they usually can grow the same amount of permission in the swing within the goal, they have solid hit every time. It's really interesting that I've never heard it put that way of permission. Mm. Is that the same as kind of allowing yourself to go, experiencing your swing, experiencing what's happening to you without judgment, shall we say? Yeah, I would say so. Because when the permission gets stifled, it just means that there's a point in which in that in those two seconds of a golf swing is where all of a sudden... Um, you know, a try, a want, a fear, a hope, basically manifested in the swing. And usually for most people, it's before impact somewhere. Sometimes it's, you know, in their transition. Sometimes it's right before impact. Sometimes it's, you know, starts at the beginning of the golf swing. So when they can start to feel the difference between when they get stifled and their permission gets stuck versus when they, you know, have full permission for those two seconds, then they can start to feel the experience and the difference. The biggest thing to allow for that is, yes, creating a space where really they're free of judgment of how it all, of how the ball flies, of how they're doing, of how it looks, because that's when they can really start to feel and experience um, their swing, potentially for the first time. And now it's interesting, having read Fred's book years ago and having talked to Fred, and he's a delightful fellow. He's a good chap. Um, (laughs) But I I often wonder... And you can answer this for him and yourself. Is this method of instruction, do you think, is more beneficial for a beginner player, an intermediate, or an expert? And and the reason I ask that question is, I think the longer people have been in the world of golf, the less malleable they are because of all the, the thousands of cuts and scar tissue that they've endured through their golfing experience. It's tough to remove a lot of that programming mentally and physically from somebody that's been doing it a long time because part of it is they think they know or they think that there's a, a solution and they're just going, oh, I heard Megan's a good teacher. I'll go to her. Maybe she can save me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, 
I'd agree with that. And, I, you know, Fred did, did say something kind of neat. He said, you know, the people the easiest to work with are the ones that are either desperate or inspired. <laughs> and it's kind of true. That was actually the original name of the show. <laughs> uh, we were going to call it Desperate and Inspired, but we, uh, we went with Swing Thoughts. So you're saying somebody who is at the, uh, you know, it's funny. I bring it up, Megan, because I have a friend who is a, a very fine teacher. And uh, we were just hanging out yesterday, and uh, he sent me a note after. We were just hitting balls together, and he sent me a note after because I saw a guy walked over to him after I left. And uh, I said, what was that all about? And he said, this guy walked up to me, and I wish I had the note in front of me. He said, I'm at the point now whether I'm either going to quit golf or go left-handed. <laughs> Because that's, and that to me, I laughed. I go, that's desperation. Yeah. If you're about to go left-handed thinking that's the only thing left for you, what do you say if that's one of your new students? I find that's really exciting because <laughs> they're, they're so ready to be open to, you know, what's possible for them and maybe look at a different way, um, I guess, a different way of looking at themselves, so to speak. You know, I think also, you know, Fred talks about, you know, the world in which we live in. You know, they're ready for a shift in that. And so it's so it's so exciting to have people that come to the door that are, you know, really close to, you know, this is it. To the edge. Like, if yeah, something exactly. doesn't change, I'm done. And I've heard this a few times this summer, including from uh, the, the fellow who sits across from me back in the deep, dark June. But... Uh, we were also talking about yoga before we got on the air. We noting that that you uh, are a yoga instructor. How does that? Inf- how did that influence your instruction? Um, yeah, and actually, um, really neat way. There's such a parallel here, and I find um, obviously the benefits physically of yoga um, are pretty obvious. But um, what I've noticed is that in yoga, when there's when we detach ourselves, so thoughts come in naturally. They always do. Thoughts are going in, you know, coming in right now in all of our heads right now. But when we detach ourselves from them and not judge them, just sort of be the witness, the observer to the thoughts, watch them kind of come in and come out, um, that gives us a chance to kind of come into the state of, you know, calmness, peace, um, you know, kind of be in our body, those types of things. Um, usually that state feels really wonderful. feels like that's when we're really present. Um, time kind of stops existing in that moment. So <clears throat> that's the biggest parallel I found to, to this, is in those two seconds of a golf swing, when we, um, when we detach ourselves from the want, try, fear, and hope, um, things kind of take care of itself. And this, this brilliant technique comes out, too. It's quite fascinating to watch. So I'd say those are the biggest, that's the biggest parallel I find between yoga and golf. You know, it's funny. There's so many uh, cliches in golf and acronyms and little things that we accept. And I was telling Tim before we started recording that I went through two major yoga phases in my life. Most recently, a couple of years ago, where I, I went back to yoga. I originally did uh, Moksha, then I did Bikram. Oh, by the way, what, you're, which uh, do you teach? Um, Hatha. Hatha yoga, and, which is and, basically and, an umbrella to a lot of the other sure. yoga lineages. Sure. A lot of the Hatha poses are incorporated into the other two. But I just remember... Um, when I first started taking yoga, I brought my sort of type A golf OCD. I was going to, I went from never having done yoga to like, I'll probably instruct yoga someday. <laughs> but I remember at some point 
you know, feeling awkward. You know, when you do hot yoga, your first couple of uh, times in that studio, you're basically thinking, your thoughts are, I don't know what I'm doing and I think I'm going to die. Because it's so hot. And then one of the instructors I had said, you know, if you can just be in this room and not worry about how you're doing and not, you know, my goal for the first month was to be able to make it through the 60 or 90 minutes without passing out. Because mm-hmm. it really is, it's something, uh, there's something psychological about that, that amount of heat. The other thing that I remember, and I, just as you talked, is, is it's, and it's funny because I got to a stage where from golf standards, I would have been like a 15 handicap yoga participant. But I realized at some point it didn't matter. It, and, and they always say this in yoga, it's yoga practice, not yoga perfect. And and for some reason we can't bring that to golf because we have hit all of us have hit perfect golf shots. We think strangely enough that all our shots should be perfect. Mm-hmm. But isn't that isn't the point that it's that's not the point. The point is it's just practice. Yeah. It always is just practice. And I think it's easy and myself included we lose sight of that. Um, you know, when we go out and play, are we really playing golf? And, you know, I looked up the definition of play, and it's basically to engage in activity for the sheer enjoyment and fascination. And when we're playing golf, are we really playing, or are we just working at it all the time? Um, when we're in a place of play, we're in a place of non-judgment and fascination and curiosity and learning. Um, but, yeah, I'd say majority of majority of us are... Once we get on the golf course, that sort of stops. And now it's become about performance and working and trying really hard. And uh, it doesn't seem as fun from that place. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that in that place of, say, try hard, grind, hate that word, mm-hmm. but when when that happens, we because we're trying so hard, we in fact become unconscious to what's really going on. And I think that's when the dreaded slice comes or the shank or or whatever. And I think that's one of the things that I found so refreshing when I first started to become interested in Fred's approach and then, you know, obviously with yours, is that it's really a different way of approaching the game in that we're we're trying to disassociate ourselves from the results from what's happening but to be really conscious to the experience and i think for most golfers that's a foreign thing they don't really know what they did because they they'll make a swing and go what did i do there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's we lose the attachment to how that ball flies you know the instant that happens we lose sort of the experience of what allowed for that to happen well, when you're a yoga instructor and you're, you know, the people in front of you are, you know, going into a pose, um, you know, you'll hold that pose sometimes for 15 seconds. And, and a good instructor uh, can sort of verbally correct you. Some are very good at hands-on adjustments. Mm-hmm. And how do you, but it's tough as a golf coach or as a golf teacher where you're, you have your student in front of you in an environment that the game isn't played on. Like a range, right? Like a range. Like there's nothing, that has nothing to do with golf, and yet they have to go away, and their yoga studio, if you will, is the golf course, and you're not there to make sort of quiet mental adjustments. Yeah. So how do you set your players up for success? What's the mindset you send them out into the, the world with? <laughs> Another great question. Amazing. <laughs> that's why um, this is that's this is why this is the award-winning swing thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why. Um, 
Yeah, that's the biggest challenge. Absolutely, I have. I mean, when someone, you can create this environment in that hour, you know, um, and pretty readily. And, you know, Gary Lester of Extraordinary Golf talks about, you know, you're really loving that person for an hour. Mm-hmm. And so, but, so, you know, we can do all this and then, but yeah, when they go away um, and they're not with you anymore, it's out of your control, completely out of your control. And, you know, now they're, who knows, they could be listening to, you know, Golf Channel, all that kind of stuff, other people, and that's okay, and that's normal that that's going to happen. But, um, yeah, that's one sort of challenge I've found, and the most success I've had is the people I've worked with, you know, for, I've done, like, unlimited coaching for four months, basically. And so you see that person quite often. And that's the, you can really, over time, start to see the shift in how they see the world. Do you have a rate where you, like, move into a person's home, you eat with their family, <laughs> you're down in the basement, anytime they get a notion, they can come and go, uh, Megan, I, I just want to talk about slicing. Can I, can I borrow the car? <laughs> that's right. Well, <laughs> Megan's there in the backseat on your way to work, you know, you're like, you know, anyway. Um, you know, it's funny about extraordinary golf or other methods of golf that are non-traditional. Mm-hmm. And people always say to me well but yeah i mean that's all good and well but what if i want to like hook it around that tree uh, over water and just think it <laughs> well i mean it's it's i always sort of support the idea that you know if you're a decent player i'm not talking about a brand new golfer but if you're somewhere in the handicapped teens you've hit draws and you've hit cuts and you've hit low shots and high shots and sometimes when you're in the world of play uh, and even at my level, you know, I, I sometimes couldn't tell you how I conspired to give myself permission to draw it around a tree. I just, I just feel it. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't just, I could, I could talk about drawing your right foot back, putting it back in your stance, hooding the club and, and all that stuff. But ultimately I give myself the information and then, but over the ball, I'm not thinking that I'm just sort of feeling it because yeah. I, I sort of got this sort of trust in my my physical being to pull it off. Yeah. But I've been doing this a long time, and I also buy into it. I would think for somebody who uses your method, that might be the biggest gulf to um, close, the gap to close, <clears throat> because everyone wants, tell me exactly how to do this. The information. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and I say, like, when, I, when someone throws a ball, if I ask them to put draw spin on it, course you know or the opposite they can do it they can do it they know how to it's amazing to watch so you know when they open up to okay now they can start to feel this sort of permission filled swing and know know what it's like to not get in their own way so to speak um you know to basically swing without a yip basically you know then they can start to open up to ball flight and that you know drawing and fading the ball and 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 they we already know how to do that just as you're describing we kind of we just know how to do it but the want to do it perfectly is what gets in the way right of doing it i've noticed do either of you guys play ping pong yeah, I yep. love ping pong. A bit. Yeah, I've been playing it. Like, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I my brothers and I played it as a kid. And, you know, once you sort of learn to bat the ball back and forth on a table, then sort of through trial and error, you put a little spin on it or you overspin it with your right hand. And, like, nobody ever showed the three of us how to do that. Mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, I, maybe I saw one, one of the people I played with once when I was a kid learn. But, you know, I, I haven't played. I played it a couple of years ago at this place in Toronto called Spin. It's really cool. It's like a bar with tables. And all you do is play ping pong. And, but it, it always comes back to me. I haven't practiced it in years. But I can do that little overhand sort of smash shot because I just... I just somehow you your body knows what to do when you said draw it. Tim instinctively made a draw t- um, a throw with his right hand. Mm-hmm. We all know how to do it, but for some reason, when we're in a golfing environment, we we want it. We want to know we're doing it perfectly. But I never think of my am I my hitting this little sp- spin backhand perfectly. I just do it. Either it works or it doesn't. But I don't have any attachment to it, and right. I think that's the. The disconnect for golfers that we're so attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Megan, what would you recommend to golfers who, who maybe want to experience what we're talking about? Would you just say just go on the range and and instead of trying to do the step by step thing to hit a draw, like play it back or something like that, and draw your right foot back? Would it be just allow them to just experience it without thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, number one, to divorce what happens to the ball for a little while so they can actually feel and experience their swing. Notice how things start to change a little bit as you, just again, just like you're drawing it with your hand, um, you're going to be doing that with your golf swing. Um, but the only reason we can do that with our hand is because we really don't care where that ball is going to go mm-hmm. in that moment. So when we can divorce that, then you can start to really experience um you know, that swing and how it changes a little bit and the subtleties to that. You know, a, a friend of mine who teaches, who's got a, an interesting method, he said um, something recently to me. He said, you know, I don't think anybody should ever practice hitting a straight shot because the number of times in a round of golf that you're going to go from point A to point B in a straight line is virtually never. There's always some kind of and I'll only speak for myself. <clears throat> so at, at the level I play at, if the pin is back left, I'm going to draw. I'm going to try and draw it off something, and and try it. I mean, I I'm not going to hit a straight shot. I might hit a. My my, my thinking is the straight shot's the miss. <laughs> if it goes straight, great. If it if it curves, perfect. <laughs> but most. People never think that. I don't know why. Because you know, all we practice on a range is hitting wedges to a straight at a target. I never, I never do that. Yeah. No, exactly. It's fascinating that we, all, you know, so many. The majority of the golf industry is thinks that the straight shot is the best shot, and um, it's just kind of fascinating. Versus, there's so much more that we can do there's such an art to it that what we can open up to you know i have um my partner um husband he's you know he was practicing on the back range of, i don't know about four or five years ago and someone came up to him and he loves to curve the ball kind of like a bubba watson and that's all he plays is curvature and someone came up to him another golf professional and not his fault by any means just kind of said um you know, you're never going to play at the level you want, hitting it that with that much curve. So without knowing it, he kind of searched for the straight shot for the next three years and had the worst three years of his life. No. Oh. <laughs> well, Mo Norman said it's the hardest shot in golf. Yeah, yeah I, I would listen. I'm, I'm not a professional by any means, but I would submit to everyone listening that, you know, you, you should be trying to curve it most of the time. And play it, and whatever curve you're trying to do, play, just like a break and a putt, play more than you think you should. 
Yeah. You know, if you're trying to draw it around a bunker, you better make sure that if you happen to pull it slightly, it's never going in that bunker. But it's also more fun. Way more fun. It's so, it is, absolutely. <laughs> and, and for some reason, and it gets back to what you are saying about playing the game of golf versus always being in a state of, I'm not really doing this right. And that's why, as Tim said, grinding is a tough thing to do and I'm working hard. I'm always working on my game. You know, I've hit less balls this summer than I ever have in my entire golfing life, and I've had a way better season. Because when I do practice, I practice my short game and putting because I think that no matter how the quality of your ball striking is that day, they can save a lot of rounds, and it feels good, and it's easy on your body. I'm about 80. Yeah. And, um, but when I do practice, I just, I just play around a little bit. You know, I, I'm spending less time working on the range because I'm not trying to learn how to hit the ball straight anymore. Yeah. You know, and, and some days, you know, I generally play a draw, but some days it ain't there. The other day I played a tournament, and for 27 holes I said, well, apparently my draw did not come to the golf course today. <laughs> so I will, I will stop now, because a couple times I tried to draw it, and I just either snap-hooked it or blocked it, and I went, well, that'll be enough of that, because the draw has stayed home with the dog. <laughs> and I spoke in a British accent, Megan, for reasons I still can't explain. Well, there's a new. There's they have a new lady on the Golf Channel. I think she's there because yeah. she's pretty and she's got an English she's pretty. accent. Yes, it's the same way the Brits on BBC. They always have an American as well doing it there. Yeah, who is that guy on the? Uh, he's like an old tour player. I see him. I hear him sometimes on uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings. The British uh, coverage. I've never yeah, heard I know, of the guy. I, golf is really big on accents. We know. Yeah. We know that. But Megan, I want one thing. I wanted to ask you before we let you go today is that. A lot of what we're trying to talk about is changing our mindset, changing our expectations. And so when someone comes off the golf course, someone that you've been working with for a while, the standard thing that you ask somebody is, what did you, sh- what did you shoot today? And they immediately go with the number and they said, oh, well, it could have been this, could have been that, left a lot out, out there. What, is, is there one question you ask or a series of questions that you ask your players? Um. Yeah, it opened up to the first question. Be like, what did you learn today? You know, what was fascinating out there for you? Um, and, they, you know, it takes maybe a little bit to sort of think of that if sort of they've been hung up a little bit on how they played. But eventually it's sort of like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Um, yeah, kind of hang out with um, what did they take from the round. And I think for me now in golf, um, the reason I play now versus much different even just two years ago would be to learn about myself a little bit more each time because there's just that's what golf kind of does sort of exposes all right yeah i'm just kind of in my way here on this this is kind of interesting nothing to judge i'm doing i'm still doing okay just go to the next one see if i can still learn learn about it um you know at the end of the day i think we're all just doing the best we can with what we know um so yeah i'd say the more what we're learning about ourselves would be the biggest thing I would ask. You know, the uh, the phrase, we're all doing the best we can with what we know, is pretty much the reason anyone gets up every day. <laughs> Forget golf. Yeah. Like, really, like, I talked to my daughter last night. <clears throat> She's uh, 18 and a half years old. <laughs> I knew it was going here. <laughs> no, but it was funny. We, she was talking about a friend of hers, and she was explaining that there was some disconnect in their relationship. Uh, pardon me, Megan. I'm, our studio is filled with microscopic dust, and uh, I breathe it in every day, and I'll probably get black lung. Anyway, <laughs> that's my issue. So I'm talking to my daughter last night, and she was sort of doing what you know, girls do about you know, other girls, and I said, you know, 
if you value this person, you've got to give her some some room to to be offside sometimes. I said, because remember, she's just doing the best she can with what she knows right now. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was a boy involved, but that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But my point is, you know, we, for some reason, we don't forgive ourselves on the golf course the way we would in our general lives. We kind of go, eh, you know, I was kind of in a bad mood today, or I was busy, or I didn't get to the course. and, And I try and expect to shoot the greatest round of all when, when really you just kind of go and maybe that intention as Tim talks about maybe your intention that day is I don't know just to enjoy yourself a little bit you know to you know try a couple shots you haven't tried in a while to you know accept that maybe you're not going to have your best stuff that day and see what you can do with that yeah yeah I I, uh, I agree I think we we don't give ourselves that space or you know that word per- permission to just be and learn and um, you know kind of find out about ourselves we kind of stifle that I think especially when we get on the golf course well Megan one thing uh, people ask like, okay how do you detach yourself from score here you talk about it on your podcast and different things mm-hmm. and it's all well and good but like you're a, you're a very competitive uh, player yourself. You won the uh, Ontario uh, PGA Spring Open. So when you go into a tournament, what's the mindset you're taking? Is it that you're you're trying to do the best you can, learn about yourself? I mean, you're going out there, I would think, to win. Or so, take us through how you kind of work yourself through that. Yeah. Um well, it's been an interesting year for me because I've had rounds in tournaments where it does feel like nothing, and nothing is sort of. I just kind of have been able to kind of get up and go and 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 play and and detach myself from the result really really quickly, um, and therefore the performance sort of takes care of itself. Then I've had times where okay, I notice I'm kind of okay. I really want to get this close, and you know that manifests at some point in the golf swing. Um, you know, and then I'm sort of like, okay, well, I'm doing the best I can, and all I can do is go to the next shot. And what I've found is that when I stop, when I forgive myself and stop judging myself, everything starts to come back. I kind of start to come back to a state of clarity, a state of, new, I guess, neutral, if you will. Right. Um, but when I start to make up the story of, oh, man, I, you know, I know all this stuff. Why can't I do this? Come on. <laughs> you know, you start to create all these things. Well, I get further and further and further away from being able to come to that, come back to that state of clarity. So the more I give myself space, so, okay, I hit a bad shot. Or I don't even use the word bad. I hit a shot that went over here. Okay. Ooh, That's interesting. Yes. Let's go to the next one and find out what happens. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, as a tournament player, I don't know uh, if you know any of my background, but I played a lot of tournament golf, and I played a lot this summer. And, um, you know, it's weird because one of the things I learned in the space of a couple months, and I've been playing a lot of tournaments for a long time in my life, and I was telling Tim, um, you know, sort of the low point for me was how I played in the Ontario Mid-Am, and that was in June. And then a couple months later, last week, I played in a pretty prestigious amateur tournament called the Willie Park. And as I, I, I didn't really even, I couldn't have explained to you before it happened what was going to happen. But because of the work that I've been doing, and some of it with Tim and some of it on my own, I noticed on the first hole where I just about hit my drive out of bounds. In fact, when I hit it, I thought I made good contact, and it hit a tree that stopped it from going out of bounds. And I, for the first time, I even noticed there was out of bounds over there. 
<laughs> but because I played a lot of tournaments, and of course we're always a little bit nervous and excited, but I had the sensation I was walking down the first tee, or sorry, first fairway of a 36-hole tournament. I noticed that my body felt different because for the first time in probably my tournament life, I didn't feel scared. <laughs> I felt excited, but I wasn't scared. And what's, that's a big difference because when you're scared of a bad shot or a bad outcome or what are people going to think of me if I put in a bad score and all those things, it's hard to access any of your skills. Yeah. But I went on from that point and I made a bogey and I made some other bogeys and, and life just went on and I ended up with a fairly okay round. But the score didn't matter. What mattered to me is what I learned that day is I can play competitive golf and be excited, but not scared that I'm going to screw up somehow and what will people think of me and all the other things we do. And I, I got to tell you, both of you, probably the biggest thing I learned about my golfing self is that, you know, I can play competitive golf without being afraid. <laughs> and that's huge. That's such a cool breakthrough. Um, you know, because majority of us, I think, are playing <clears throat> each round um, in fear and hope. Every shot. Because I hope it goes here or I fear it doesn't go here. That's right. And when all of a sudden, when there's a detachment from that, this ease and peace kind of comes over us. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm okay. <laughs> and it's going to be okay. And you still hit bad shots. Absolutely. It still happens. And, uh, you know, like... I have had some really low rounds lately, but I've also had some rounds that were like a little scrappy and I was kind of having fun and I was enjoying myself. And I, you know, in the second round of this tournament, those greens at Weston are ridiculous. On the first round, I didn't three putt at all because I was below the hole all day. The second round, I actually hit it better, but I was a little bit past the flag. I three putted five times in a round of golf. Hmm. But I still I left there thinking, I'm still a great putter. Yeah. I just got it on some parts of the greens you couldn't, couldn't two putt from. Yeah. But I was so detached from, like, I didn't go to the green after. I didn't call Tim and go, Tim, something's wrong with my putting. <laughs> I don't know why I talk like that, but I do. Um, I literally left there. I went and played the round the next day thinking, I'm still one of the, I'm still a great putter because I didn't take, I didn't think three putting five times made me a bad person or that my skill was wrong. Absolutely. I just hit it in some spots that are just tough, man. And that just seems so, so Megan, I want you to speak to this piece, but you mentioned the word empty when you talked about the typical kind of instruction, put the club here, do that. And I'm going to connect that to what Fred Shoemaker was talking about. If you just simply look at winning as being the sole objective or shooting, I would agree with him. It's kind of an empty experience Mm -hmm. and that what Howard's talking about and what I think we're kind of glomming onto here is that it's more just of the experience and what we learn, and being okay with us. And to me, that's... I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who just go, well, that sounds very, very nice. <laughs> but I still want to break 80 every time I play or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's... When we can, again, when there's a shift within us of how we see the world and we go out and play for the sake of, okay, this is awesome, I'm out here, I'm out here... Let's see what I can find out today. Um, performance always takes care of itself. And again, anyone I've ever asked that, what you know, when they play their best, how describe it? Not one person ever says, you know what, you know, I really worked hard keeping my arms straight today. Not one person says anything to that sort. Even people who are 36 handicaps, never. When they have their best rounds, they never say that. 
You know, it's funny. I was talking to my brother. Both of my older brothers love the game. And, and, you know, they sort of can both break 90 now after years of playing it. My brother said to me yesterday, I was talking golf with him, and it's weird in my family how I've kind of replaced my late father as the go-to guy you call when you've had your great round. (laughs) And I think one of them shot 87 this summer, and he was describing his round, and he was telling me how much more comfortable he was hitting the driver and his chipping was better. But not once did he say, I really had my club in a good position on my backswing all day. Because it has ultimate, and I've seen his swing on video. You don't want to watch it. You know, you want to get that image out of your mind. Um, but he, he hits it nicely enough to get the ball around. And, and as you know, I just thought the interesting co- thing about the conversation was nothing he said had anything to do with technique. It was all about how he felt playing, yeah. playing golf. And I find that is a source of technique coming out. Mm. That's the beginning for that person's technique to arrive that day. And everyone's technique is, there's an art to everyone's technique, you know, basically technique is an art. Um, but yeah, I find that is the reason technique comes out that day. Trying to ensure it comes out stifles it and doesn't allow for it to come out. Well, and if you're scared that it won't, it never will. Correct. Mm. Yeah, because we're kind of in that fear and hope place. You know, I, I, a really good friend of mine is a, a, an excellent putter. Almost as good as me. And I said to him once, I said, why are you such a good putt? Yeah, I've got an ego. Um, I said, uh, you know what? You're such a good putter. I said, you know, what do you attribute that to? And he had a great phrase. He goes, I'm not afraid of three footers. And I thought, you know, that's great because most people are tentative with longer putts because they're afraid that it won't be close enough to the hole to tap it in. But a 30-foot putt that you leave three or four feet, it's not bad if, you're, if you feel good about, you know, trying to make those putts. Most people get all excited when it's, they just want it to be tap-in-like. That's right. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's too close. <laughs> it's too close. <laughs> or, or they'll say things like, well, you, even you can't miss that one, O'Connor. <laughs> but that's how people think about it. Right. Whereas if you're a little bit detached and you think a four-footer is just like a 40-footer, is just like a chip shot, it's like, it's just another shot. And you know what? Sometimes they don't go in. Three of the five three-putts I had at Weston were really tricky downhill three-footers that I had to play break on that I hit nice putts. I didn't pull it, didn't whiff it, didn't... I hit a nice putt. It just didn't break. Yeah. And I walked away going, wow, that was a good putt that didn't go in. So what? Absolutely. Um, And that's all we can ever do. And I find in those two seconds of a putting stroke, when we're detached from the want, try, fear, and hope of getting it in the hole, this brilliant technique comes out and and we stroke it with... You know, we have tempo, rhythm, we hit it solidly, hit in the center of the face. And the elements like, yeah, break, speed, all that stuff, if it doesn't go in, it doesn't go in. But, you know, that is all we can do. And we're only, we can only do what we can in those two seconds of a movement. Megan, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. How do people get out? Do people, can you, can you even take a lesson from Megan or are you just booked up through the late uh, 2000s and 20s or whatever? (laughs) We got a little. We got a little space in here this fall. <laughs> how would they? How would they? The Georgian Bay Club, Megan Chapman. What is it? The Academy at the Georgian Bay Club. All right. Very good. <laughs> thank you, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much, Howard and Tim. That was great. There, yeah, it was. Tim O'Connor, thank you. O'ConnorGolf.ca uh, and uh, the Humble and Fred Show at HumbleandFred.com. Uh, this program brought to you by uh, TaylorMade Adidas. Number one driver in golf. And uh, Blue Springs and Glen Carn. Goodbye.
guitar, George. He knows all the chords. 